lock in on what's the ideal experience and stay true to that. The pressure to give in and concede and compromise in some way, it's a very powerful force that is pushing you that way because you want to launch, you want to get something out. Some things just seem insurmountable. But if you do, sometimes that will be the demise of your dream. It's just really locking in like, this is what the experience is about. This is what it has to be like for the end user to find it delightful and satisfying. That not conceding, that not compromising is what leads to the great success, but it's hard to get there. It's hard to stay true to it. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, here's today's question. Have you ever heard a song while you're in a bar, at a restaurant, out shopping, watching TV, and wondered, what is the name of that song? Now, although you might not have heard of my guest today, I can almost guarantee that you have heard of his product. Two billion people have downloaded it. It attracts eight million new users every month without a dollar of marketing. And in 2017, Apple bought it for $400 million. That company is, of course, Shazam. And my guest is the founder and first CEO, Chris Barton. When Chris first founded Shazam in the year 2000, it was an idea considered way too far ahead of its time. Just to give you some context on that, this was three years before iTunes, seven years before the invention of the iPhone, and eight years before the App Store. So to put it simply, there was no market for digital music. However, Chris went on to accomplish what everybody, everybody told him was impossible. Taking his idea from it will never work to a global phenomenon and the birthing of what has in my life become an unofficial verb, can you shazam that song for me? In this conversation, we get straight into his struggle with undiagnosed dyslexia and ADHD as a child, a disadvantage that he now genuinely considers to be his absolute superpower. How after first pitching a demo version of Shazam, he was told by a VC that I don't see why anyone would ever use that and why that moment became his motivation for taking Shazam into the stratosphere. The importance of holding a start from zero mindset, which involves questioning every assumption that everybody else holds to be true in your space and then building from those basic truths. How hard he had to fight to keep the name Shazam and what he learned about walking that very fine line as a founder or anybody who has an idea ahead of its time between staying true to your vision and leaning into other people's experience. Finally, how to get traction with an idea that's way ahead of its time from pitching the unpitchable to the core levers you need to understand and pull in order to get traction. Now, for me, 
This was just simply a masterclass in how to trust your gut, communicate with vision, ignore the critics and start before you're ready. Now, for those who are ready to take their journey in influence to the next level, don't forget, hop on my website, jump on the show notes and download the latest version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It's very short and it just covers the seven core areas, seven core questions that I have found hands down to be the most useful when it comes to fast tracking your level of influence. Just pop in your email address and it will be in your inbox in the time it takes to make a cup of tea. On that note, it's time. Sit back, caffeine up, vision on, and enjoy the man responsible for the majority of my random music collection, Chris Barton. Welcome to the podcast, Chris Barton. So good to have you here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Um, I want to kick off the way that I usually kick the podcast off, and that is to ask you if there's one idea that's just having a large amount of impact on your thinking right now that's influencing the way that you perceive your work, the world, your life. And the idea behind this question is just very simple, that people who have incredible ideas tend to find incredible ideas before the rest of us. So is there one idea that's just really impacting you? Um, there definitely is, but I feel like the whole world is probably onto this idea right now because it's just you can't ignore it, which is chat GPT. Are you familiar with that? Yes. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you know, because obviously it's, this is just the beginning and I have met a lot of people that have not tried it, but it's just it, absolutely just mind blowing how it, it can come up with these responses using AI to any open ended question. Uh, and um, it's it's a representation of just so much potential for the future. I mean, my, my entrepreneurial mind already starts spinning and thinking about how, you know, a salesperson could get advice on how to respond to the next question from the potential customer. And you can just imagine infinite sort of uh, possibilities for, for what can be done with an assistant like that. Um, but I even asked it yesterday. I, I, I gave a nickname to our new cat um, and, and the cat's name is Harrison, but his new nickname is Cat GPT. Um, and, um, and, uh, and then I asked chat GPT, I said, if you had a cat named cat GPT and it had a lot of characteristics, like a, a language processing model, but you wanted to make fun of it, like a cat, what would you come up with? And it, and it, and cat and chat GPT came up with something really funny where it, it came up with these cat versions of everything related to a language processing model based on transformer AI technology. Uh, and it was very good humored. And at the end, it said, and don't forget to rub the belly of your cat. It was just so funny and um, there's, amazing. There's so many nuances to that question, right? Like there's so many nuances. The fact that you have a cat, the fact that it's a nickname, the fact that you want to m make fun of it, but through this very particular lens. I, yeah, I haven't used chat GPT in, in quite that in quite that way before. And I wouldn't have thought that you'd have got much back that was other than a few pithy responses really a very creative response yeah very creative um yeah it is it's mind-blowing I, I encourage people to try chat gpt and and to just give it the most unexpected questions that's where you really are impressed you know not not just research something or write an essay or something but you know really challenge it with something unique and, and sort of out of left field and you'd be shocked at what it comes up with and I just, it just, to me, it's just the whole generative AI and all the, the creative side of AI, creating paintings, pictures, essays, articles, 
Um, these are the things that I find most fascinating and I think have the most impact in the near term because accuracy is not as important. You know, if you're going to ask AI, you know, book my flight to Cairo next week and it makes one mistake, you might be on the wrong plane going to the wrong city. Um, so that, that could be a big problem. But when you just ask it to come up with a, a little story or a paint a picture um, and it makes a few mistakes, that's not a big problem. So I think there's a lot of opportunity in the near term with that. Um, I was talking to Ben Jones, who's the head of Unskippable Labs at Google last week, and he was saying that we are probably about a year or so away, that's his prediction anyway, to being able to create our own movies. So basically, if you took, his example was, if you took Star Wars and you typed into some kind of text box, you know, I want to see this in the style of Quentin Tarantino. And you would be able to basically recreate, it would recreate Star Wars for you through the lens of if it had been directed by Quentin Tarantino. And so he talks about the gap between imagination and creation, basically, imagination and expression, sorry, basically becoming non-existent through the use of AI from a creativity standpoint, which just, you know, the possibilities start to become almost overwhelming. Over, absolutely overwhelming. Yeah, it's just so many things are going to be impacted. And I, I think that this, we're about to just hit this hyper curve of change. Um, I think even just the next few years are going to be just incredible. And we'll look back and think, wow, do you remember before there was generative AI? Wow, how did we survive? Before I get into your, your story, um, one of the things that really, that really caught me first is that you struggled with undiagnosed dyslexia and ADHD as, as a child. And you have said before that you really believe that they were, they became your superpowers. Talk to me, talk to me about that because I haven't heard it described that way before. Partly because my son has both ADHD and dyslexia. So of course I was forced to sort of learn more as I can help him through, you know, getting through the schooling system. And he's a smart, very, very bright, creative kid, but, but of course struggled to learn. And I couldn't believe when I saw his scores back in second grade and what he's in the bottom 5%. How can that be? Uh, he, he seems so bright to me, but anyway, so it opened a lot of doors uh, for me to read books and so on. And as I read a lot of these things, I thought, oh my gosh, this explains everything for my own life. You know, like, it's like, you know, this explains why when I was uh, in fifth grade, which is about, I guess, 11 or 12 years old, you know, they, they took the 60 kids and they said, we have to divide you into two classes. Uh, and I got put in the dumb, the dumb class, you know, and, and, um, and then how did that happen? You know, but of course, you know, learning is challenging when you have these learning disabilities and, and, and focus dis, uh, focusing disabilities like with ADHD. And, um, and then later, even in college, I, my first semester at UC Berkeley, I got a 1.7 GPA, which is just below, essentially it's failing. It's like below, it's below a C average. So they did send a letter directly to my parents saying you'll be kicked out of university. And so, I mean, when I look back at sort of some of these struggles, uh, I realized as I mapped it against some of the books I was reading, I realized, oh, this, okay, now I understand why I was having so many challenges. You know, and now I understand why when I was at, at Berkeley, I would literally choose my major and my courses by going and looking at the list of books I'd have to read and choose the class with the smallest list. Um, and, but what, what, what was unexpected is I learned from two books, and I can name them actually. For the ADHD, it was called Driven to Distraction, an excellent book. And for uh, dyslexia, I recently read a book called uh, The the dyslexic advantage. And wow, you, I mean, yes, these, both of these things create significant disadvantages in the traditional form of education that we have. And also in, in some of the traditional activities that we 
engage in, in, a, in any kind of business or corporate environment, um, they can have challenges, but also you get these superpowers. Um, and the superpowers um, in ADHD, the superpower is two, kind of two things. One is that um, while ADHD people are known for having a lack of focus, actually when they lock in on something that they really are passionate about and care about, they do what's called hyper-focusing. And so they literally focus at a level that exceeds by a long way the focus level of a, of a typical person. So they, so they kind of get the complete reverse. Uh, instead of being a disadvantage, the focus becomes an advantage. Um, and uh, this is something I actually did in one of the courses I was almost failing at Berkeley, where I suddenly locked in and, and I went from bare, almost failing to getting an A because I just, it was econometrics, the most difficult class within the economics major. And it was um, statistical economics, essentially. But, you know, I hyper-focused to the point where the professor couldn't believe the paper I produced. Um, so that, that, that's, that's the advantage, one advantage of ADHD. The second one is that you actually get a very high level of creativity. And, and the way I think of it is, if you think about it, we all human beings um, lose their concentration a little bit and their, mind, their thoughts jump around. But for an ADHD person, on average, that's happening at a pretty at a higher level more commonly. And I think it's that jumping around that often leads to ideas. So it's not a surprise that if you your mind jumps around, you're gonna come up with interesting ideas. And if your mind jumps around more than most people, you're gonna come up with more, more interesting ideas or more unique ideas um, possibly than, than the average person. But so yeah, it is, ADHD people are known for being quite creative. I actually went to an ADHD self-help group once and I noticed that even though everyone had ADHD, one person so much that he literally had been in multiple car accidents because he couldn't keep his concentration while driving. Um, but, but I noticed that they would all say, oh, but they don't want to let go of their ADHD because they loved the kind of creative uh, powers that it brought them. Um, and then on dyslexia, dyslexia gives, is essentially a different way of seeing the world and, and processing uh, things, not, not just reading, by the way, that's one of the big uh, misunderstandings, but it's also how your memory processes and how you come to um, conclusions around different thoughts and so on. And it can lead to what's called big picture thinking. Uh, Robert Redford's son actually produced a movie um, all about this. Um, and um, and uh, I forgot what it's called now, but it has the word dyslexia in it. And, uh, and yeah, so basically it gives you these superpowers because you have this big picture thinking. And one way I like to think about it is Imagine that you looked at an equation and it had three or four variables, and that was all the number of variables that you could think of at the same time. But a dyslexic brain might actually be able to accommodate more, most, far more variables at a time. Um, and so be able to like kind of look at a conclusion with more data pieces of data. And so that's the big picture thinking. Um, and they have, so dyslexics will have certain advantages that don't come out in traditional academics, but they can come out in these unique uh real life um, kind of creation opportunities. Uh, so yeah, anyway, so it, it is fascinating how it can it can lead to these superpowers, but you have to understand what they are. And you also, I mean, it also explains why, you know, incredible entrepreneurs yourself, I think Richard Branson as well, you know, if you have the ability to, to be able to factor in multiple variables and from a creative thinking big picture point of view, and then draw a conclusion and hyper-focus there, you know, that's the recipe for new ideas getting off the ground, basically. It really is. Yes, yes. Because big picture thinking is really seeing farther into the future in a way, right? You're like thinking this is the way the world's going to play out with all the variables going on. Um, and I mean, in a way, when I look back at the Shazam idea, it's kind of crazy to think that, you know, I thought, oh, you know, because you have to remember when, when I came up with the idea in 1999, 
a mobile phone could only do two things, essentially make a phone call and send a text message, nothing else. I mean, there was one other thing, actually, download a, a monophonic ringtone. And so I was locked in on, well, what else could we do with mobile phones? And that, of course, it ended up playing out over many years with with uh, first first web browsable websites, then Java apps, then Brew apps, then eventually the smartphone apps within the iPhone and the Android, which became about eight years after the, the idea of Shazam. Uh, and then, and then eventually it all happened, you know, this sort of vision. I mean, I didn't actually plan all that, which I could have, uh, but I, but I sort of had this vision that, you know, that there could be something great there on these devices that everyone carried around. Um, and so, yeah, so it's, we call it intuition, but I, I think intuition makes it sound like it's just like a magical ability of some type. So I'm just like, you know, I just know what's going to happen, but I really do think it is this big picture thinking that's sort of processing many variables and as a result, being able to see it just a little farther in the future. I've heard that discussed that way when it comes to gut feel as well. I was talking to a um, to a scientist about about gut health and gut the the link between gut health and and gut intuition basically, and you know how many how many cells are in our gut and how much information our gut processes at any one any one given time. And if you look at that through the lens of what you're talking about now, you're you're essentially talking about being able to process more variables faster which leads to something that feels like a push or a shove or intuition or gut instinct, where actually it's your ability to be able to process everything that's going on around you and then be pulled into a certain direction based on the conclusions that you're reaching. Let's go into Shazam. So I just want to go backwards a little bit from Shazam to a, a conversation that you had in the Berkeley Computer Lab with somebody um, I think it was an, an Air Force pilot, which kind of, it seemed to me when I heard you tell the story, became the seed that became Shazam. No, actually, it was the seed that in, made me feel empowered to start a company. And shortly thereafter, within literally, well, I guess it was actually, you know what, when I think about this, it was actually a full year from when I had that conversation to when I came up with the idea for Shazam. So the MBA is a two-year program. I came up with the idea for Shazam at the beginning of the second year. That conversation occurred at the beginning of the first year. And um, I was in the, this is at UC Berkeley MBA program. And I went there kind of thinking what most MBAs think is, oh, I'll get an MBA and that will help me with my resume. And then I'll, you know, climb an extra ladder uh, in the, in the corporate world. And I came from management consulting. So I thought, you know, it'll lead to a, you know, a big climb in management consulting or something else interesting. But I didn't really go there thinking I'm going to start a company. And I was in this computer lab uh, just working on some assignments in those first few weeks of the first year. So I'm literally in the very beginning of my MBA. And I just started chatting to the guy next to me. He was a second year, so a year ahead of me. And he uh, and I said to him, well, what are you working on? He said, I'm starting a company. And I thought, wow, starting a company. We're all here to do our MBA. What, what are you doing starting a company? Uh, and then um, I said, that's really impressive. And, and by the way, this company went public. I mean, it was a real company. It was a, it was a real estate company called Zip Realty. Um, it since has faded away, I think, and, um, but it's no longer a company. But at the time, it, it was quite successful. So I then said, well, what did you do before business school? And I was really curious kind of what equipped him to, to start a company. I mean, you know, while a, a graduate student. And he said, well, I was an Air Force pilot. And that was a real incredible moment for me because I just thought, 
wow, this guy, I mean, there's nothing of relevance between being an Air Force pilot flying these planes at tremendous speeds, other than taking risks and having a lot of guts. Um, but other than that, there was no like knowledge transfer that I could see to starting a company, particularly a real estate technology company, um, other than being like, you know, a go-getter that's willing to take risks and has lots of guts. Um, and uh, so it just opened my mind to thinking, wow, you know, I really is that there's really anyone who wants to start a company, they can do it if they just believe they want to do it. It, it doesn't come to, you don't have to think, I think before that moment, I thought, oh, you probably have to have this certain set of knowledge and experience that would be appropriate to start a company. And after meeting the Air Force pilot, I thought, nope, that's out the window. It's just about whether you want to do it. Uh, and so that was really, really game changing for me when I met that guy. His name was Scott. Thank you, Scott. Whoever, whoever you are out there, have you ever, did you find him? Have you spoken to him since that point? No, I should reach out to him and tell him how he influenced me. So let's fast forward a year now. Fast forward a year. Um, and the idea for Shazam was born. What happened? Was it, you know, was it, was it a moment where you just suddenly thought, you know what, like, wouldn't it be great if you could identify a song with your mobile phone? But I, I, then it was Nokia. So how did... How did that even come into be come into be in your brain? Yeah, so I got my first phone right around my first mobile phone right around that time during the MBA program. My MBA was from 1998 to 2000, so I got my first mobile phone. That was an inspiration, one piece of the inspiration. I had this other part where I, I thought I want to start a company, um, and then I was in this sort of brainstorming mode of just being open to different ideas and seeing what I would lock in on. Um, and I always like to say that the idea of what's that song, what, that was actually probably the least novel part of the of the idea, because, I mean, the reality is so many people had that problem, right? So many people in life thought, oh, what's that song? And in fact, there were actually six or seven other companies that had tried various firm, for, forms of what's that song. Oh, and I'll get into the difference with Shazam. But, uh, but so so I would say the idea had two stages. There was part one of the idea, which is what's that song on a mobile phone? And that part really came to me because I was thinking, okay, here, I can see that I have a mobile phone now and everyone was getting mobile phones. And to give you perspective at that time, if you had rolled the clock back a year, year or two before that moment, it would have been maybe 30 or 40% of people had mobile phones. And if you had fast forwarded the clock two years after that moment, it would have been like 80 to 90% of people had mobile phones. So we were at an, this inflection point in mobile phone adoption during those those critical years of around 97, 98, 99, 2000, 2001, when it just went from like, you know, it being, we all had a friend who had a mobile phone to being, you were crazy if you didn't have your own mobile phone. Um, and uh, so I remember at that point, I would say it was probably, we'll call it 60, 70% of people had mobile phones. And um, I thought, gosh, all these people are walking around with mobile phones they're going to want to do something more with them. You know, what, what can we do with them? There's kind of, I wanted to come up with an idea for the mobile phone. Here, here there's this a piece of electronics that was sitting, you know, in your pocket all day long. And, and everyone's like, oh, wow, it's so great. I can now make phone calls from anywhere. I love this. But I was thinking, well, what else can you do? You know, like that, that's just the beginning. Maybe there's other things. So that was, that was a, a kind of a, a, a core basis for, for the ideation, I would say. Um, and then, as I said, this sort of initial idea was, well, hey, maybe we could do What's That Song? Now, as I mentioned, there were six or seven other companies that had come up with that idea. And what I like to say is that they all used what I call traditional thinking. And in traditional thinking is what we most commonly do. In traditional thinking, you think in a, curve, in a uh, incremental way. You tend to think from what you know, 
right? From analogy. So, um, so basically what we, what all those companies knew and what I knew as well, when I researched it is there were technologies that would monitor, they would monitor thousands of radio stations and they knew what was playing on the radio at any given moment across all radio stations. So they were just, they were essentially, it was music. It was rudimentary form of music recognition. And the reason I say it was rudimentary is that that technology, which was different than the Shazam one, it was a very simple technology because it wasn't very powerful because monitoring a radio station is actually a relatively relatively easy music recognition problem to solve because and the reason for that is radio stations only play a total of about a hundred thousand unique songs in total they only play the hits meanwhile there's 100 million songs in shazam's database today um and then and then also when you're monitoring a radio station you have a nice clean signal that you're monitoring against so it's, it's like it would be like pattern it would be like having voice recognition where it's always the same person talking Right. So, you know, it was just a nice, predictable situation. Um, and so what all these companies were doing was building from that. So we'll, we'll monitor radio stations and we'll connect it to the phone. And then you'll have this experience where you can find out what song is playing. Now, there's two big downsides to that. One is that it's clunky as a user experience because you have to, like, type in the radio station of what you're listening to to find out the song. Um, you also have to know the radio station, by the way. Uh, and then secondly, it won't work for all the times that it's not a radio station, which is, by the way, is a lot. Bars, clubs, cafes, theaters, shopping centers, right? You hear music in many places. It's not always radio. So uh, so th those, are, those are two big problems. And so the real aha moment in Shazam was when I was I had locked in on that original idea. And then I did this, what I call first principles thinking, or actually I call it build from basic truth, which is basically... It's based on first principles, but it's basically really questioning the assumptions and breaking down to what are the true basic truths and then building up your ideas from there. And the basic truths was, were that a mobile phone had a microphone and music was audible. And then I thought, oh, my gosh, what if someone could just hold their phone up and identify the song from the sound in the air? You don't even need to know what was playing on the radio station. And that was the breakthrough idea for Shazam. Walk me through that. I, w I just want to break that down with you for a second, because what you said there about starting with basic truths, which, you know, some people call first principles, but I love that. Start with basic truths. So how did you walk that through? Because you jumped straight from there to, you know, mobile phones have a microphone and a sound. And I, I was just like, okay, well, I couldn't have made that leap between that and that. So just walk me through that thinking. You started here, you moved to there, you moved to there. What does the thought process of basic truths sound like? I'm glad you're zooming in on that because you're right. That's really important. So, Okay, to get before I answer that, I, let me just answer one thing or, or clarify one thing, which is that there's a reason why we don't normally do this, this build from basic truths or first principles. And the reason is it's actually very taxing on the brain because what you're doing is to get to basic truths, you have to question every assumption. So, for example, like what if I just sat here right now and said, how do I know that I'm really talking to Julie? Maybe this is Julie's twin sister, you know, um, that would be questioning the assumptions, right? Um, or, you know, just you, if you, we sat there and questioned every assumption all the time, it would be exhausting. We'd never get anything done. So the way we get things done and the way our brains are programmed is to just make assumptions and therefore we can kind of quickly calculate what, what our thoughts are, what our conclusions are, what our next steps are. Um, when you question assumptions, like, I mean, one famous example is Elon Musk, when he created SpaceX, he, he questioned the assumptions of what it would cost to build a rocket. That's a, that's, if you look it up on the internet, you'll often see that as an example of first principles. Um, but uh, so in this case, frankly, I was, I was kind of, I fell into first principles thinking, shall we say, initially, partly out of fear. 
And so the fear was this. I thought to myself, if I built, built this service where I had, I knew what was playing in all the radio stations and I provided this service on mobile phones that would tell people what was playing on the radio station, I suddenly thought to myself, if I build all that, what could someone do that would leapfrog me and therefore disrupt me and make me irrelevant? Because that, I mean, that's every business entrepreneur's worst fear, right? I mean, we're talking to a lot of entrepreneurs, hopefully uh, on your podcast. And I mean, imagine building a business, you spend several years building it, and then you just become made redundant by something new. And so it was that fear that I, I started to think, what could someone do? And that's when I thought, oh my gosh, what if they didn't even need to know the what was playing on the radio at all? What if they, you know, what if they could just identify the song from just the sound in the air? And it happened. So that thinking, what I was doing is by thinking that, and again, it was led by fear because I was thinking about, about what could someone do to leapfrog me. Um, I was therefore thinking in with building from basic truths because to get to this very open-minded thought process of what could anyone do if there was no barrier, if, if like if there was there was no fear of something not working, like just let's just let's just forget all the things that we think prevent us from doing things. What could anyone do in the future? That was really when you start thinking about what are the possibilities and you you start questioning all the assumptions. You see how how it, how it leads your brain that way. Um, and so then that's when I led to this, gosh, if if the, if anything was possible, you could theoretically just identify music out of the air, right to the phone. Um, and, 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 and I ignored the fact that, well, that might be an incredibly difficult problem. And you'd probably have background noise and people talking and you'd have to have every single song in the database and you'd have to know exactly where in the song it was. I mean, you'd have to, you don't know when the person's going to record the few seconds of the song. It might be the beginning, the middle, the end, anywhere in between. And, um, and you'd have to therefore have this vast search database um, that you'd search to, to implement that. So, so, but I didn't let any of those fears stop me. I just thought, what could be done if there was just no barrier? And I love where that started, like making a list, liter a literal list of what am I, I mean, you said it came from fear, but the outcome is the same, you know, what are the assumptions that we are making here? What are like, and just keep going. What are all of the assumptions? What if that wasn't true? What if that wasn't true? What if that wasn't true? What if, and not going to the place of, oh my goodness, if that wasn't true, that would be so hard. That would be incredibly hard. That would involve this, this, this. I, I kind of want that to be true. Let's just, let's just say that it is. You know, just being able to hold that place of possibility and, and hold it very strictly for a while. Um, and I think it's important, you, you touched on it, but I think it's important to say again that at that time, at the time when you were developing Shazam and going out there and first talking about it, you know, there was, I heard you say, you know, you were talking about things like they'd be able to see the cover of the album, they'd be able to access the lyrics, they'd be able to download the song, they'd be able to share it with friends. And you're out there talking about all these things that are possible, none of which were possible at that moment in time. That technology was years away. As you said, Nokia was the prevalent phone at that time. Most of us who are our age had a Nokia. Um, and there was literally no market for, for digital music then. What, what did you learn about pitching the impossible or the seemingly impossible or the not yet possible? Yeah, well, I learned that, uh, yeah, basically, anytime you pitch something that's a long way from what people are expecting, you, you will definitely face a lot of doubt and resistance. Um, and it's, it's just a natural thing. And uh, I, you know, I, I, I draw an analogy to it in my keynotes with Galileo, because um, you know, Galileo, he, I mean, he saw that the Earth revolves around the sun, and that was not the, 
basic, you know, the basis of on which thinking uh, was formed uh, with regards to uh, the solar system at that time. And uh, so he faced a lot of resistance. I mean, to the point where he was called a heretic and um, thrown into prison. Uh, and uh, people don't like being told that the way things are is, is not the way they will be, um, or maybe they never actually were that way in the first place. Um, and um, they're not used to it either. So I did have, I, I, I give one example sometimes of a venture capitalist. I showed him a demo of it. And usually when I show this demo to, to venture capitalists, it would at least be a way to catch their attention and say, look, we're going to build a business based on this. And I'd show a, a little Nokia phone identifying a song and getting the result via text message. Uh, he said, his doubt was, he said, well, I don't see why anyone would, would ever use this. Um, and so, you know, he kind of thought, he wasn't even impressed with what I had done. He kind of thought, why would I want to use that? I, I thought it was so funny. I want to stop you there because I've heard you tell this story. And what I heard you say was that mo you told the story and then you said, and that just motivated me so much. And I, I remember sitting back and thinking that motivated him. I, I think that would have crushed me. I mean, I've started and scaled businesses and I've had a few moments where someone's kind of sat you down and gone, hmm should you really is it a good idea I'm not sure it is um and you've got to like for me I'll speak for myself those are moments that you typically need to recover from but you didn't go that way with it at all you said that 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 motivated you so much how why and and how did you hold that mindset I mean just give you an idea of how visceral the motivation was the moment he said that and this was a very large uh, venture capital firm with a lot of employees the moment he said that, I said, oh, yeah? I said, well, let's go out of this conference room right now into your main area with all the desks, and let's just go and ask the employees of your company right now if they would use this. And, and he kind of stood back for a second, and he said two things. He said, he said, he said I, I wish the entrepreneurs that I had funded had that same oomph, <laughs> um, you know, because he loved the fire in my belly. But then he said, uh, he said, um, he said, frankly, he said, look, I realize now that there's a large market for Barbie dolls, but I would never buy a Barbie doll. So he could see that you know, he was looking at it through his lens. And in his lens, people wouldn't use that feature because he wouldn't use it. But then he realized when I, when I said, let's go ask people at these desks, and you're, if they would use it, he suddenly realized maybe they would. Maybe they actually would use this song identification service. So did he, did he go or it just, that was enough? Once I threatened that, he, he, <laughs> he accepted, he said, okay, well maybe, maybe, maybe a few people would use it. Um, although he still questioned novelty. Is it something that people would try a few times and then stop using that? That was a common uh, concern. A lot of the venture capitalists thought that, oh, you know, this will be just a novelty. It will be like, it's like a wow factor. Oh, wow. That's magical. You can identify a song. People will use it two times and then that will be it. They didn't see it as an ongoing need. I, there's also something in there that's just worth drilling into for a second. The, in my experience working with, you know, thought leaders and, and speakers and entrepreneurs, there's this quality that the ones that really break through have. And my business partner and I, we, we tried to language it for ages. We were like, what is that? Is it, is it charisma? No, you know, I hate that word. I don't even know what it means. Um, and it's bordering on other things that aren't so pleasant sometimes. And, what is this thing? Because we can both feel it when someone walks into a room. We can both feel it in a, in a conversation or at certain points in a conversation. And we settled on the word certainty. Some people just have, and you know, you and I talked about a mutual friend, Peter Sheehan, um, before we came on air today. 
and you know he has it in spades you know this this absolute resolute certainty and that doesn't mean that you know not willing to admit that you're wrong that doesn't mean not being open to new ideas it's not being certain but there's an energy when you communicate something that you believe strongly in that has a force to it a force of certainty and that mindset of certainty is so attractive like when you were telling that story about the guy that was like whoa okay i wish everybody backed themselves that way you know did you always have that or did it come from um knockbacks did it come from a particular time in your life you know i think that uh, yeah and i i call it another, another great word is conviction right and I, just incredible conviction and i i um I definitely think I had it a lot. Um, I mean, I, in my life, I had a, I even have an example where a biology teacher told my parents that I questioned her too much. This is when I was about 14 years old and I questioned her authority and I questioned the, some of the things she taught and she didn't like that. She wrote a bad report for me, but, uh, but the, the way I see it is that maybe in some way it's tied to the experience of be, having these learning disabilities. Cause you start to realize that you're struggling. And then as you struggle, people then question, you know, they don't believe you, or it's harder to believe in your capabilities. But then you kind of think, hmm, I don't know, I feel like I'm getting this right a lot. I'm just not doing a very good job of, of demonstrating that I can get it right. And, um, and so maybe you start to overdevelop your own sense of conviction um, for, your, for some of your thought, your, some of your ideas. Um, and you realize that you can have, con you need that extra conviction because you're not so good at necessarily communicating and, and convincing and sharing um, due to your other limitations. I, I, it's just a theory. It could be that I'm just plain stubborn. <laughs> no, but I love that link back to, you know, the, the um, counterintuitive thinking that, you know, dyslexia, ADHD, a lot of these learning, um, different ways of learning are superpowers. You know, they have inherent superpowers attached to them and potentially, I don't know, I'm going to think about that more, potentially certainty, conviction becomes one of those. Yeah, absolutely. And, and by the way, there's one quote I dug up and I, I don't have it in front of me, but it's something like, there's nothing more satisfying than doing what people say you cannot do. And I do believe that is such a rewarding thing. And if you think about what we're motivated, when we're motivated by a sense of achievement, I mean, the ultimate achievement is to achieve what people are literally telling you you can't do, right? And uh, whether it's like competing in the Olympics or whatever it may be, you know, it can be anything. It doesn't matter what it is. But that is just so satisfying when people are saying you, you can't do it. And then if you do do it, you've kind of proven them all wrong. But first, you've got to internalize it as fuel as opposed to a full stop. Yeah. This is fuel rather than a full stop. Um, I think... Also, going, you know, going back to Shazam for a second, at that point in time, what really fascinated me was that the initial version of Shazam you were saying is, was a number you had to call. I didn't realize that about Shazam. Yeah, because uh, the, that was the way, again, we were, when, what's amazing if you think about it, you, many times when you, when you launch an advanced technology on an evolving platform, you're initially limited. So like, for example, there'll be a new feature on a browser, like, uh, you know, and, and, and it would only be available in the latest version of browsers, which only 10% of people have or something. But when, when we launched Shazam, we launched this highly advanced service and it was usable by everyone with a mobile phone. 
Isn't that amazing? Our first market was the United Kingdom. But literally the day of launch, every single person with a mobile phone could use it. And the reason is that we just used two technologies on a mobile phone that they all had, everyone already had. And those were making voice phone calls. And obviously every phone makes a phone call and then receiving text messages. And obviously every phone can receive text messages. And so the way Shazam worked and out the gate at launch in the summer of 2002 was that you dial the phone number and you dialed this phone number and made a phone call, a traditional phone call. And then we, instead of having a person answer the phone, we had a computer answer the phone, otherwise known as an interactive voice response system, just like you get when you call the airlines. Um, and, then, and then we would just simply say, hold your phone to the music. And then we would just start recording the sound immediately recording the sound of that phone call. Then we would terminate the phone call after about 15, 20 seconds. And then we had the caller ID because you had just called our system. So we saw your phone number. And then we would just send the text message back to your phone with the name of the song. So there you were, you get a text message saying, you just identified this song by Shazam. Uh, Shazam identified this song. Isn't that, that was it. How, how did you monetize then? Because this is a whole era of Shazam that I knew nothing about. How was it a free service? Was it paper use? It was paper use. Yeah, that was the only real way to monetize at the time. You, know, you couldn't you couldn't do advertisements because you know, again it was just a text message. Um, you couldn't sell songs. There wasn't even iTunes. There was no digital music. You couldn't even download songs to phones at the time, uh, and so you couldn't do that. So really, the only thing you could do is charge per use. And actually, there were pred predecessors to this from a business model perspective, which is. Uh, you may remember directory inquiries here in the United States, it was 411. In the United Kingdom, it's 192. It, it, the number varies by country, but directory inquiries, the old days when we used to say, can you please give me the phone number for United Airlines or Domino's Pizza or whatever? And then you get charged uh, 50, about 50 pence, 50 cents. It varied over time. So we we followed that model. We would charge you each time you identified a song. And we'd also, by the way, make sure not to charge you if we were failed to identify the song. Then it was free. Um, but yeah, that was our business model. How did you initially, so we, you know, you've, you've got the idea, you've gone through the process, you, you've obviously got some funding despite that initial VC. Did he end up investing by the way? No, that venture capitalist did not invest. No. <laughs> um, but I know you did, you did get funding and, um, now you've got to get some groundswell, right? Like that's. That, that's the next job. What were, what were two or three of the, the core levers that you, that you tried to pull to start getting groundswell around the idea? To be honest, it was so difficult to get a user base that, that my answer is we never did get a groundswell. We never did get the user base. Um, so we, we did try everything under the roof of marketing, you can imagine. We actually hired, uh, so in the United Kingdom at the time, the, the closest comparable you could find to our service would be like, or where if we were going to hire someone away, it would be radio stations. So we hired away that the head of marketing for the largest group of radio stations in the United, in the United Kingdom called Capital Radio. And we got him, BJ Solanke. He came and joined us. Um, in fact, he lives in Australia now, I think. Um, but anyway, uh, so he joined us as head of marketing. And then he led a team where we then ha had a marketing budget. And we did everything you can imagine, including ads on the radio and our ads would say it would be we'd make sure to be the last ad of an ad block and then we'd say and try it now and, and then we knew the music would be the next thing that the listener would hear um we had uh web-based ads we had we even hired people to walk into bars and go up to people in the bar and literally say hey there's this cool service you can use called shazam and show it to them can you imagine you know i laughed when i read that because i literally did that job not for shazam but for another company 
Oh, really? I was actually paid to go into bars and buy um, people drinks and say, hey, have you tried this drink? Let me buy you one. So did it work? <laughs> no, it didn't. But maybe that's the problem. Maybe we should have bought people drinks and then it would, really would have taken off, right? Uh, <laughs> Alcohol was the key, obviously. Yeah, but you know, I mean, the, the, you know, honestly, like everyone that experienced Shazam and tried it, did they all liked it, right? I mean, even though it was so rudimentary, if you showed people Shazam back then, you show them, hey, dial this number and then you get a text message with a song. They all, it was just like today where they thought, wow, that's like magic. Oh my gosh, I can't believe my phone can do that. But the problem is that there's a lot of friction to get to get the word to spread because now they have to they have to remember this behavior that is just unprecedented, right? So it's not like using an app where everyone understands that. It's like dial this phone number and get a text message and then explaining that concept to new users. It's it, it's really challenging to get messages out and to change user behavior. And we are changing behaviors. We're saying, you know, hey, all the entire public of the United Kingdom, instead of just making phone calls to call your friends and and sending text messages to them. Now you can dial this four-digit number and identify songs. It's, it's, a, it's a real hurdle to get that message out. And so we only had you know, tens of thousands of users or maybe low 100,000 users, but tiny numbers of users, especially given that we only make you know, 50% of 50 pence per use and so on. So the amount we spent to get awareness of a new user was far less than the amount we would make in revenue. So we, we were losing money on the marketing. So that must have been incredibly challenging period of time right you've got the idea you're trying everything you know to get traction um what how did you stay too true to your vision during that time what was it that enabled you to kind of hold hold firm when i would see the users that loved it i just thought this is great we just just kind of figure out how to survive and get the message out there now that survival turned out to be a six-year period I, I often like to say um, when business owners think about a tough quarter or even sometimes a tough year. And then occasionally they'll talk about a tough recessionary period they had of two to three years. And then I would say, well, let me tell you about the tough six years that we had. <laughs> um, because it really was, because from the day of launch of Shazam until the day the App Store launched, which was on the iPhone, that was a period of six years. So from summer 2002 is when Shazam launched and the App Store and the iPhone launched in 2008. And the truth was that the world had not truly come together in a way that Shazam needed until the app store launched on, on the iPhone. So it's only then that you had apps and downloadable music and beautiful graphical user interfaces and a place to discover new services called an app store and, and an understanding of behavior for users that apps are things that you can do on your mobile phone and everything, all the floodgates opened for Shazam and suddenly we were a super popular app and always remained a popular app from that day onwards. Um, but to get there was six years from the launch, six from the launch, not from the inception of Shazam, because that was a three years to get Shazam out, built and launched. Um, it was six years from the launch of Shazam until the app store came out. I want to segue very quickly to the name Shazam, because that for me was part, part of you staying, you know, when I'm, when I'm reading your story and I'm listening to you tell your story, a big part of it is you staying true to the vision that you had. And I know a part of that was Shazam and the name Shazam and that your co-founders or a co-founder wasn't too keen on it. A lot of the VCs weren't too keen on it. How did you come up with it and why did you stick with it? So the moment I came up with the idea for Shazam, I came up with the, the name just came to me. It was like just a instantaneous gut instinct thing. Um, I just kind of, because I knew you'd, someone would be holding their phone up to identify a song. And, and what can that be described as than anything else than just magic? 
I mean, literally you're holding your phone in the air and it just gets the name of the song. So to me, that seemed magical. And Shazam was like an exclamation that I mean, it actually, it actually truly means to conjure magic. Shazam means to conjure magic. Uh, and that's how it's used. If you, if you dig up where it's been used, it's used in a way in, in media um, to kind of conjure magic um, and uh, an exclamation. So um, the name was just instantaneous. I loved it. I thought it was so perfect for the company. But as you mentioned, I did face resistance. So I had, yeah, I had one co-founder who didn't like it at all. He said, oh, no one's going to remember that name. It's so difficult. Um, I had a venture capitalist or more than one venture capitalist who said, oh, you know, that name is really weird. Can you, can you call it something more memorable and descriptive? Like what's that song or name that tune or something like that? Thank God I didn't uh, do that. And then, uh, and then even when we hired our head of marketing, he kind of thought, oh, should we, maybe we should rename this service. And, and, um, and that was his job. So frankly, I was nervous, even as I, even though as CEO, you can't just start shutting down everything your head of marketing is doing. So I, I was fearful that I was going to have to let him to rename this service that I, and I was really emotionally connected with that name. Luckily, he concluded that we had enough traction and momentum with that name that we, he, we wouldn't question it. So the name stuck. And now to people tend to love it. I mean, it's very unique, very, very memorable. And I think just sort of a perfect match for, for what the service is. But that's also an interesting point for you. Like you had, you had pushed back the, the co-founder. You push back on the VCs and yet your head of marketing comes in and that way it sounds like that one you would have gone with, you know, that was either the final straw or, or you were like, you know, I'm paying you for your expertise here. You know what you're doing. Yeah. And I think that's something to learn for CEOs, for entrepreneurs, like who you listen to and who you don't listen to. Well, you know, and there's an added, there's an added element you that, that, is unmentioned there that is worth mentioning, I think, for any entrepreneur, which is the real reason I would have given up, I would have had to give it, give in to the head of marketing was that at that point, there was now a board and the board comprised mainly of venture capitalists. And they're the ones that gave us all the money. And they do take an incredible amount of power and control once they've given you all the money. So at that point, the venture capitalists are thinking, well, you're spending our money and you hired a head of marketing. You can't, you can't then just overrule everything, you know, everything he does. And they kind of, and they don't, you know, they don't really, they would have just said, we, we want to do whatever the head of marketing does. So it, it would be less between me, the founder, CEO, and the head of marketing, and more between me and the venture capitalist. And that was, there was a lot of push and pull and a lot of friction there, without doubt. So Apple launched the App Store in 2008. How, how did that change everything for Shazam? Oh, gosh. I mean, you know, I, I can remember that so vividly because when that happened, they actually had immediately a feature in the App Store they had was a ranking. It was sort of the, here are the top ranked apps. And it was it was representing purely from a meritocracy standpoint, you know, which apps are being downloaded the most frequently and they would get ranked the highest. And there Shazam just remained in the top most downloaded apps and just stayed there day to day. And I was addicted. I would go back and I'd look at those rankings probably three times a day for, for weeks um, from the launch. And I was just couldn't believe it. It was just such an incredible feeling of satisfaction. Like I knew it. I knew this could be a service that people would love. Uh, and, uh, and finally, it was really happening. Um, and um, yeah, and that, that was just game changing. From, from that point onwards, um, you know, starting with the iPhone, iPhone App Store, and then of course, Android followed very shortly thereafter with their own App Store. And then really just Shazam just was always just so 
relevant to what people wanted to do with on their phones. And it just stayed, st always stayed very, very popular uh, and, and, or just organically stayed popular. And did you know, like, what warning did you have? Because obviously you had to reinvent it as an app, right? Like it wasn't an app. There was no apps previous to that. So what kind of, what inside track did you have to go, hey, you know, tap on the shoulder. These apps are coming. You should be one. You should be here on launch day, ready to go. Yeah. Well, so, well, first thing I should say is that although building an app sounds sophisticated, I would say if you looked at like how hard it is to build Shazam, the building the app part would be like 0.01% of the effort. Um, you know, so you've got like the, you've got like the algorithm that identifies songs in a noisy environment. You've got that vast database of fingerprints of music. You've got the search engine. That's a giant supercomputer. You know, you've got all these end things. And then like the, the app is just like some lipstick on the top. Um, you know, and, and yes, it is software code, but it's pretty rudimentary. And nowadays even like a single person in their home can build an app. Um, it's just, it's really just an interface to interface with a very complicated service. Um, but what happened is that Apple was very smart when they launched their app store. They thought, how can we showcase this app store? Because it's going to come out the gate. They had the iPhone for a full year before the app store came out. And when the app store came out, they wanted it to be a smashing success. So they actually had a team that went around the world and thought, well, what will be the best showcase apps to have, be in the app store at the day of launch? And they included things like games, of course. But anyway, one of the things they chose was Shazam. And so they actually connected with Shazam and they actually even got hands-on and helped co-create, co-design co what the app experience would be like. Uh, and that's how much they cared about um, what that experience would be like within their app store. In fact, they even, in their first year of the app store, which was 2008, they even created a television commercial using their own budget, their own advertising budget. It was a dedicated 30-second on-air commercial that was the whole point of the commercial was to sell iPhones, but it, the, on, the commercial was only about Shazam. It was demoing the Shazam app and saying, here's another reason to buy the iPhone. And then they spent a bunch of money on media buy to just to air that commercial all across uh, the United States and maybe the world. How, I mean, there's so many moments, I think, in, a, in the entrepreneurial journey, in any kind of journey around impact where you think, okay. Like I'm just going to, I'm going to take this one in that, that must've been one of them. The, another one I've heard you talk about is when you went to a grocery store and it was the first time you'd ever seen someone Shazamming. I mean, again, I use Shazam as if it's a verb that had that even occurred to you at that stage that Shazam would become a verb. Oh yeah. It didn't initially, but it is amazing to me how it has become a verb, but yeah, I know the grocery store one, um, that was, you know, more recently when it's a, a popular app on iPhones, but still, you know, it's, it's still not a, an incredibly common thing in a grocery store to see someone shazamming. But in this particular instance, I was just waiting at, to, to check out at the cashier in this very small little grocery store. And the person in front of me suddenly said to the cashier, oh, what's, what's the name of that song you're playing? And next thing you know, there's this whole interaction. Hey, let's shazam it. And you have like the customer and the employee of the store shazamming this song. <laughs> and it's all happening right in front of me. And, uh, and I, I didn't say anything, but I just sort of smiled and thought, wow, this is, this is really amazing. And have you, you know, obviously you went on, um, you went on to sell, sell to Apple and, you know, that, I just want to talk about that, that day. You know, because we fast forwarded through a bunch of milestone moments for you when you realized that this was having a huge impact now. This was having a huge amount of influence now. This had, had gone the places you envisaged way back at the beginning. 
that day, the day when the sale went through, where were you and what was the what was the overriding feeling that you felt in that moment? So there was sort of two days because there was the day that we agreed to deal with Apple, but then we had to wait about 10 months before the deal actually closed because it was very closely vetted by the kind of uh, Monopolies Commission of Europe. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so, but the, you know, the real day for me was the day that a deal was agreed between Apple and Shazam, which was around November, 2017, I think. And the deal as it closed in around September, 2018, um, it was incredibly exciting. I mean, you know, at, at that point I was on the board of Shazam. I, I, I was no longer, I had for a long time, I had been working at other companies like Google and Dropbox. Uh, I think it was at Google at the time, you know, I was very, very intricately and passionately involved as a, as a board member of Shazam, but I had moved on to other tech companies on a full-time basis. But it had been a long road, frankly. It had been 18 years, Julian. And uh, and to see it end up in the hands of Apple couldn't have been a more delightful outcome because you know, a company that was so user-centric, customer-centric, sort of beautiful experience was a, was a core thesis to everything they did. And, and that matched so well with you know, Shazam users loving the Shazam app. And I just thought, what a great home for it. And, uh, you know, they actually eliminated all the advertising in the Shazam app. We relied on advertising to make money. And you know, I never had this love-hate relationship with advertising because it brought money in. But at the same time, it sort of clouded the experience. Um, and, and then they were able to then take it in the direction of just delighting so many people around the world even more with Shazam. And, and they've integrated it into the control panel of the iPhone and so on. In Siri, they had done that even before the acquisition. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, Apple doesn't buy that many companies. And, and even before then, I had heard from the big bankers like Goldman and Morgan Stanley and so on. You, you, it's very rare to be bought by Apple. They just don't buy many companies. Um, and so to end up as the sixth largest acquisition of all time by Apple was just as like, wow, way beyond the wildest dreams I could mm -hmm. ever have. What's the what you know? If you had one piece of advice for anybody out there who feels like they're sitting on an idea that is potentially ahead of its time, you know they can see it, but just they're struggling to get others to see it. They're struggling because it's either the technology doesn't exist right now, or you know to actually do the thing is more hard than people are willing to take on. You know, climate change, for example. Um, what's what advice would you give them? that they can head back into the office tomorrow morning or this morning and keep front of mind? You have to, I think the advice I'd give is to lock in on what's the ideal experience and stay true to that. It's the pressure to, to give in and concede and uh, compromise in some way um, is very, is, it's a very powerful force that, that is pushing you that way. Cause you want to launch, you want to get something out. You want to, some things just seem insurmountable. Um, but if you do sometimes, that will be the demise of, of your dream. Um, and I, I think that it's just really locking in. Like, this is what the experience is about. This is what it has to be like for the end user to find it delightful and satisfying. I mean, another analogy I draw is Dropbox, where I spent four years. And they knew that if the synchronization they built had any failure points, and there were many potential points of failure for the synchronization because it's so hard, there's so many edge cases, but they knew if there, there were any failures, then what would happen is someone would just lose their document. They would have, they would, one day they'd open their Word document, it would be corrupted. And they just knew that was unacceptable ever. 
And so they were they were relentlessly focused on let's make sure the synchronization always works in all the edge cases, even when the Wi-Fi goes out for a few minutes and so on. And and so it's in that it, it's for that reason when they were stayed true so so true to that vision and and Spotify did to the freemium model of let's have a free gateway and then you can pay and Shazam for being able to identify these songs out of thin air with a vast database and all the songs. It's the it's that 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 not conceding that not compromising is what leads to the great success, but it's hard to get there. It's hard to stay true to it. It's almost, there has a feeling around it of almost obsession, you know, becoming obsessed with the initial idea that, that captured you and that, you know, will capture others and not letting that become compromised. It's funny. It's funny you say that because I actually call it pick your obsession. Uh, and, uh, and it's, I, I literally call it pick your obsession when I, when I speak about it, this concept and I call it, you know, what is your obsession? It's the, the one big insight that you have that others may not believe they may not see. And, and, and when that's your obsession, so they see it as an obsession, but to you, it's just that it's a big insight. That's true. It's just, it's just true, but it may be that only you realize that and you have to overcome the resistance to make it a reality. Thank you so much. Thank you for thank you for your time um, for coming on today. It's been such a pleasure. Um, the Shazam journey is just incredible as a case study for how you how you take an idea that is potentially ahead of its time, and you take it all the way to the end. Which is, as anybody that's ever started and scaled anything will tell you, is not a straight line anywhere near a straight line. <laughs> a six year squiggle of a line. Um, to, to get where you eventually want to go. So thank you for sharing some of your insights on that road. Yeah, thank you for having me, Julia. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.